Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, guys, welcome to episode 12 of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have Mr. Rob Clare, co-founder and CEO of Hekabio. Rob Clare first came to Japan after graduating from college in 1987. After working in a Japanese think tank in healthcare policy and health economics, Rob started his entrepreneurial path in 1992. He has created nearly 20 businesses in Japan that focus on the goal of addressing the unmet needs of patients, doctors, innovators, and government agencies. Rob has deep healthcare regulatory knowledge, strong key opinion leader, doctor relationships, and maintains a worldwide trust network with leading innovators in drug discovery and medical technology through optimism, tenacious follow-through, and a spirit of collaboration. Rob is a school board volunteer and serves on the board of Hope International Development Agency, a nonprofit focused on enabling self-reliance for the neglected poor in Cambodia, the Philippines, and Ethiopia. In his free time, Rob enjoys traveling in the countryside of Japan, visiting Shinto shrines and hot springs with his family. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Rob Clare. Let's go. Happy holidays. How are you? Hey, Donald. How you doing? Happy holidays. Very good. Very good. Awesome. What have, you, what have you been up to this month, Rob? Oh, man. So many things going on with the business and uh, you know, I'm just keeping super busy, um, but also had some time to uh, do some travel in Japan with the family, some hiking on weekends and uh, so a meditation retreat. So I'm feeling really good, man. Oh, very cool, very cool. Especially that meditation retreat. I want to hear more about that. Excellent. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll have to meet up and talk about that. Absolutely. That's one for in person, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, thanks so much for um, taking time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Excited to have you on. Yeah. So yeah, why don't we jump right into things? All right. So Rob, what, what inspired you to become an entrepreneur? Well, thanks a lot. I, um, first of all, I, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur by heart. I, I've met some who are, who are just really inspired by, um, you know, when they were kids, they already had their own business and, you know, making a lot of money and, and chasing after the next uh, uh, good business opportunity. I think um, in, at the heart of my, um, my being. I'm actually um, a seeker of, of niches rather than a, an entrepreneur. So I, I, I always look out for, you know, what is something that, that I can do that's special and different? And I've always looked for that kind of thing. So, you know, in, for example, in college, I didn't study business. I studied the history of art um, because it was a very uh, well underpopulated major. Um, and I was able to be in a very, uh, have a very special uh, uh, 
experience doing that and uh, uh, able to get great summer jobs and a great position at the university even. But so how was I inspired to become a uh, an entrepreneur? It's kind of a long story, but um, take a you know, fast forward from my childhood of not being an entrepreneur or having that, that, that inclination. Um, when I got to Japan, uh, my, I first intended to be a, um, you know, I, 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 felt my, I thought of myself as a student still, just out of college, and I really wanted to just learn as much as I could. Um, wasn't interested in picking a career or anything. And so I joined a consulting company, Japanese consulting company, um, which just by luck, and this is just by the grace of God that I was put on a team um, in a Japanese think tank that was writing the white papers for the Ministry of Health back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So, man, oh man, I got to learn so much about um, you know, the aging of society, the birth rate of Japan, um, what are the policies that are putting worldwide that we could, we could use to, to improve uh, Japan's uh, opportunities and, and environment and uh, for women and, and how to encourage a greater birth rate, all these kind of things that were made great, you know, hugely interesting from, an, from, a, uh, from a learning perspective. Um, and an academic perspective, but not very entrepreneurial, of course. So I did that until the point where, at some point, I stopped learning at a pace that was um, satisfactory to me. And I thought, okay, well, this is getting a bit repetitive. So this is where I decided, Rob, you are just a bad employee. You're not an entrepreneur, <laughs> just a, you don't like having a boss. So I think this is <laughs> what made <laughs> Differentiate me from some other entrepreneurs who are more, more at, in the core of their being. They're an entrepreneur. Um, me, I just, you know, at one point I decided I'm not learning enough, so I don't want to have a boss anymore. So, this is how I got into it. And by now, um, you know, I've uh, being the right place at the right time through some luck and through you know, finally a flip switched or a switch flipped, and I uh, decided I didn't want to have a boss anymore. Um, I was able to to pick uh, a niche that I could get into in the healthcare space that I'd been studying up until that point and, um, and, and, and really uh, make a new niche business, which could be uh, a nice uh, sizable and profitable niche business. So really what I did is, you know, by now, I, since 1992, I started my first business. Now I've, I've started close to 20 companies in Japan, US, uh, Spain, and China, and uh, probably, you know, start up a few more before I'm finished. Uh, but uh, certainly, I've gotten the entrepreneurship bug, uh, despite myself. And uh, you know, I continue to find interesting niches and interesting opportunities in the healthcare field, uh, particularly to Japan, but some places in the rest of Asia, um, some places worldwide. But I keep finding these niches that really could be well served by having someone who's, uh, who's got the courage to jump into it and make it happen. So this is really how I got into it, Donald. Okay, I mean, that does seem to be a common trait I hear among entrepreneurs that they didn't like to have a boss. So yeah. I don't think that's uncommon among entrepreneurs at all. <laughs> yeah, just being a recalcitrant employee, yes. <laughs> Some quick background, Rob. What what actually um, brought you to Japan? 
Yeah, you know, I um, during during college, I had the opportunity to live in a couple of different uh, countries, uh, working in museums, and uh, I really got the bug for the enormous amount of learning that you can do uh, when you're living immersed in a, a foreign environment. Um, everything you see is something new. And I just love that idea. And so I thought, okay, Rob, let's, um, you know, defer going to graduate school in the history of art to become a museum director. And let's um, take a five-year world tour and see how much you can learn, how much you can add to your image storeroom and uh, build up your, your, uh, your, your, knowledge, wisdom, um, experience, and then see how that can transmit, transfer itself into further studies uh, in the history of art. This was my plan. So I got to Japan, 1987, uh, Friday the 13th of November, 1987. And, um, you know, I got here and I didn't immediately fall in love with Japan. I found it frustrating. I found it uh, more challenging than I thought it would be. Uh, I considered myself good at learning languages and I had a, a background, a little bit of a base in Japanese, but when I got here, I decided I'd learned that I was uh, disastrously bad at it. And it, it took me a long time to learn Japanese. So I would say um, at the beginning, the first year and a half, I was struggling um, and I didn't want to go along with my initial schedule of kind of moving from country to country every year and a half or so uh, on my original five-year plan, world tour plan. And uh, I decided that, you know, at, at the end of one year, okay, if I leave pretty soon, I'm gonna have to admit to myself that I've wasted a year of my life. And I wasn't willing to do that. So I, I stuck it out, um, pushed through the frustration, got good at Japanese and started to really enjoy myself uh, and feel at home here. Uh, and then, uh, right around that time, I met my uh, uh, my wife to be, um, so that uh, that has kept me here for a much longer time. <laughs> okay. And how long would you say was it before you um, stopped struggling and got a grip on the language where you can navigate yeah. comfortably? You know, I um, I remember the first day that I had a the first night that I had a dream in Japanese because I woke up so shocked that it happened. It was about a year and a half in. And uh, I had been going to uh, school every day, uh, language school every day to learn um, as I was working. And um, it, it paid off. But I, I do remember, you know, waking up in, in the dream because it, it, it uh, really, really didn't scare me. It, it shocked me. Um, but here, here's a very interesting point, total tangential issue, but or completely off the topic issue. But the day after I woke up from a dream in which I saw myself and heard myself speaking Japanese fluently in the dream, my Japanese really took off from that day on. And it was, a, you know, about a year and a half in. And it was just amazing to, to see myself uh, in this dream being fluent in Japanese and then all of a sudden it was sort of on that path to happening. Very strange. Yeah, that's really cool. So when you woke up, could you remember what you were talking about in Japanese and understand everything? 
Not at all. <laughs> I don't remember what the topic was. I just remember, wow, I, I'm observing myself in the dream thinking, wow, this is really bizarre. Who is that guy? <laughs> Who is that version of me who's fluent in Japanese? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty freaky. Yeah. All right, so Rob, so you mentioned, yeah, you started um, over 20 companies and several countries. So if you had, if you had one do-over, what, what, what would it be? You know, I, um, I tend to think the best of everyone I meet, and I tend to trust people. And it's, I've, I've proved myself uh, wrong in that a couple times. And I've needed to learn to be much more, um, condes uh, not, uh, much more um, discerning, I would say. Mm -hmm. Much more discerning about the people that I uh, get involved with in business. There was one uh one occasion where uh, you know or several occasions through my my career since uh since 1992 when i became an entrepreneur but um you know really the one issue is trusting uh people who are end up not being a good fit um either for my business vision um or fit for the business vision and, and my personal values and you know, there's been some people internal to my companies that I've hired and really didn't think they were a great fit, but thought that it could work anyway. Um, and it ended up not. Um, and also external people who may have gotten, you know, gotten involved in the business and really were not uh, uh, rowing the boat in the same direction. So I've had a couple of uh, missteps in terms of the people that I have uh, uh, joined with in certain times uh, over my career. So I think um, the, the do-overs are, it's not only one, but uh, a couple of different occasions where um, I needed to have better uh, discernment about uh, the people that I'm getting involved with. And uh, I think I've gotten much better at that. Okay, yeah, and that actually sounds like it'd be, it'd be some great advice for other entrepreneurs starting out with their businesses as well to, I guess be more discerning about the people you're um, you're collaborating with. I think so because for for an entrepreneur starting out, um, it's tempting to take the first money that comes to you. Mm, um, yeah. But we entrepreneurs, we know uh, almost every entrepreneur that you meet will will tell you horror stories about mistakes they've made about with uh, with investors that were not really aligned or really fully understood the vision, and um, you know so. Being very careful about that that first step is is good advice, I think. Yeah, definitely. And what do you think is the greatest obstacle you've encountered so far in your journey? Yeah, I there was one um, incidence in my my business where I had um, um, I had grown very quickly and there was one particular project which was 50% of the, uh, the sales uh, of the company. And so this, this made it very, very dangerous in ways that I had not predicted. Uh, this, this was the greatest obstacle because um, that company that had 50% of, of the sales revenue 
um, coming from that company. Uh, that company suddenly decided uh, to, um, el to eliminate our contract, to break the contract uh, and, and get out of the business. And it was really, really, uh, it was very sudden. Um, it was caused by some issues that I could not have predicted um, at that point. And the fact that they did that, um, and they were trying to get a drug registered in Japan. And um, in the end, they decided that they didn't believe uh, in the development plan that I had uh, proposed and they wanted to do it in another way. Um, history has proven them wrong and me right. Uh, anyway, so be it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to be grateful for, for this happening because really when 50% of the sales of your organization disappears, uh, you have to really scramble. And, um, you know, due to some amazing luck, we were able to turn it around very quickly and uh, create a better organization after that that's not, not reliant on, on one single client. So I'm actually... Uh, uh, I'm actually, you know, grateful that that happened, and grateful that I was able to survive it, and uh, and the company came out better after all. Yeah, and from and what I know about you, Rob, I'm sure it took it was a little more than luck. I'm I'm sure it was a lot of skill involved in that as well as overcoming that. Thank you. It's mostly luck, though. <laughs> and is that is that company or person? Are they still around? Do you still um, run into them on your day to day or making your rounds? Not day to day, no. But uh, yeah, I'm still uh, still in contact with them. Uh, not day to day. Uh, they're not living in Japan or uh, or directly involved with Japan business anymore. But uh, um, yeah, I'm in contact with them. Okay. All right. And so, um, just speaking on those terms, still about um, revenues and um, let's say capital. So you, I mean, you started. A couple of dozen companies, so I'm sure you're no stranger to raising capital. Yeah. So how did you develop a strategy to raise the capital you needed to get where you wanted to go with your companies? Yeah. You know, my, my first company, um, I did it all uh, with my own capital, and I didn't have much of it back in 1992. Um, and it was a year before I needed to buy a, an engagement ring. Um, so I was really, you know, struggling to put all the money together, but I, um, I, I ran it um, by myself and, uh, and, and bootstrapped it as I went along and uh, just grew it with profits. Um, so that, that's one way to do it. So my, my first company that I set up in 1992 um, was doing uh, medical um, market research and consulting. And these were some you know, techniques for research uh, that were well-known in the U.S., but were, we were told could never be done in Japan. And I thought, well, that's silly. Why not just try it? And uh, I had uh, a number of captive uh, clients who were ready to pay for that because they wanted to merge that, that, that information with their global research. So it was a pretty easy decision to make. I had captive clients ready. Um, I knew what they were going to pay, and uh, I didn't really have to invest in anything other than... Um, uh, you know, a few costs, uh, and did not have a separate uh, a separate office. Just uh, ran it out of um, my uh, my apartment at that time. So um, the 
that's how I did it. Um, and I think, you know, I think you know if people are thinking of setting up a service business, um, I think that's a really good way to do it. Make sure that you've got your your clients lined up. Make sure you know you can read what your revenue is going to be, and you know don't don't overshoot it and uh, try to do it without uh, external investment. Um, but if you need something more robust, either to uh, gain speed uh, or or to hire a number of people, or if you've got something that needs to be built or made or um, or, or large collaborations are required, then obviously you do need uh, external capital. Um, the best, you know, raising money is always um, tricky. You know, if, you, if you've got friends and family you can go to, then um, that's clearly the best way to go. Um, and, and if you don't, um, then, then um, you have to be very careful in, in how you do things. Because I believe that first, you know, the first time entrepreneur, normally they think that the company they're building is going to be the, the best thing ever. Um, and this is the, the company that they want to define their life. And so with that thinking, you know, then you, you get money from a VC who wants to own a huge chunk of your company and dictate all your rules and set your salary um, and look over your shoulder every day. So this is, is this really what you want? I think no. Um, so you have to be very careful about um, raising only what you need and trying to raise it from from friendly people who are who are there uh, not to uh, not to you know cut back on your on your creativity or cut back on your ability to operate uh, independently. But uh, the moment you take third party money, then all of a sudden you've, you've got a lot of responsibilities associated with that. So you need to, you need to understand that well and, uh, and you know, seek advice from people who have done fundraising and, and gone through that process and really know that the, the people who are intending to invest in your company, make sure that they really understand your vision and see eye to eye for how you're gonna plan to operate the company. Uh, that's that's what I would say. Okay, excellent. And just curious, one thing I know. So you said you were originally um, operating out of your apartment. So um, yeah, op optically, was that an issue for your clients? I mean, so I mean, I assume these are probably pretty pretty nice sized companies that you're um, creating creating your product and service for. So how did you handle that optically? Yeah. Um, that's a very good point. Um, I, I had a couple issues. So first on, um, you know, it, it really wasn't the, there were um, foreign companies, uh, huge foreign capital um, companies in the healthcare business who wanted to have um, primary market research and consulting done in Japan. And they all had Japan offices and I would go to their Japan offices as, as needed, and I would go around to hospitals as needed and, and write reports based on that. Um, so it really wasn't an issue. Um, the Japan clients wanted me to go to their offices anyway. Um, and uh, the overseas clients, they didn't care if the address on my uh, business card was, you know, 
they didn't care where it was. It didn't need to be a class A building in, in downtown Tokyo. So um, mm. that was not a real issue. What is an issue actually is that, um, at least back then, because um, I remember setting up the company and this was the craziest thing. So, um, you know, you have to worry about in, in Japan, setting up a company, make sure that you're, you've got your right visas in, in place. And um, the place that, that uh, my wife and I were renting not my wife, uh, no, no, I wasn't married yet. Uh, uh, 1992. So the, uh, the first place where we re registered the company was, uh, was uh, out in uh, Meidai Mai, so a little, little ways out, um, in, a, in a, a kind of a, a row house, type of terrace house, they call it. But, uh, uh, and uh, I, I needed to... Which I, I totally had not understood that I needed to do this, but the uh, the owner of the property was living next door, and I needed to get their permit. I needed to beg for their permission to register the company there. My thinking was, and this is very naive, but my thinking was, okay, I've set up a company. I need to have a uh, an address for it. So, uh, you know, I, I've rented this apartment. Obviously, it, it's my, my right to uh, register the company there. But no, it's not. Uh, in Japan, you have to be very careful with that. Nowadays, there are shared offices and, and we work and things in different office buildings that, where you could do shared offices and overcome that issue. But back then, um, I didn't have uh, those opportunities, or at least I wasn't aware of them. So. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that one problem was where to register the registered office of the company. That became an issue. Another issue, this is even crazier, was I, I set up the company by writing all the paperwork out myself. Um, and I, you know, I read through pages and pages of, of uh, materials about how to establish a company, wrote, wrote everything up, and finally was able to submit all the documents uh, in Japanese uh, to register the company. And then... Um, I register myself as the representative director, which is the Japanese word for, for president or CEO. So I write myself in there and I find out, and so I'm able to register the company, but then I find out that until then, the think tank had been my visa sponsor and my visa was about to expire. So I go to the, uh, the immigration office and I say, you know, I'd like to uh, renew this, and uh, by the way, here's my new sponsor. Look, I started up my own company. We're going to be investing in Japan and, and you know, bringing business here. Isn't it great? And they said, yeah, you don't really, you don't, <laughs> you don't have a visa. To, you don't have the permission to run your own company because you have to prove that uh, this, this job could not be performed by a Japanese national. And so I, I'm trying to have a logical discussion with the uh, the immigrations people. I said, what do you mean? This is my company. I just set it up. Uh, of course, I'm not going to hire a Japanese national to run my company. This is my company. And, uh, you know, I'm the one guy in it. Um, how can I not be qualified to run it? And so we went through this whole thing. And uh, at the end of the day, I needed to wait um, <laughs> to, to solve the visa issue before I could uh, um, actually get things off the ground. So it was, it was a hassle. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, I can see that interaction at the immigration office now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think some of these are, are a little bit easier now. I, I think, you know, it's possible, possible to get uh, sort of technical visas or investor visas. Um, 
And uh, I, I would, at least I didn't know how to do that at that point. Yeah, but it sounds like you got it worked out eventually, huh? Yes, I did. Yes. All right, so let's talk about um, HECA-Bio. Why, why did you start HECA-Bio? So HECA-Bio, um, I got uh, tired after a bunch of years of running a consulting company. I got tired for two reasons. One is um, consulting business uh, takes, uh, it's really a, an, an hourly business where you're, you're you know, you have a certain number of hours in the year and this is a cap to how much you can bill to your clients. Uh, and and that's, that's one aspect of consulting business that I, I was just kind of tired of. The other thing was, um, I, me and by that time, my, my colleagues in uh, uh, four different offices, offices around the world that we had built it into at, at my uh, consult, the consulting company, um, we, we had developed some very um, uh, unique methods of um, creating and evaluating uh, innovation projects, uh, both external and internal to R&D labs at large corporations that were focused on, on healthcare, medtech specifically. And so we patted ourselves on the back for having these pretty sophisticated tools and very long processes and, and uh, internal collaborations. All these systems, it was kind of a 10-step process by which the large companies would um, evaluate and then decide, yes, we're going to go forward with this internal uh, uh, R&D program, or no, we're gonna we're gonna buy this external um, uh, this startup. We're gonna do you know we're gonna merge with this this startup in order to get that technology in house because that's better. So all these different things we were rolling out, and I I stopped at some point. I stopped rooting for the big company, and I started rooting for the small companies. And I saw more and more of the the client individuals whom I have most respect for, uh, leaving those big, big companies and becoming CEOs of small companies. So another kind of, uh, not midlife crisis, but just one of these kind of uh, eureka moments where I, I, I took a look at myself and I said, you know, I, I don't want the rest of my life to be uh, working for big companies and talking about innovation, but not really doing much of it. And so I thought, okay, I, you know, here I am in Japan. Japan is a great market for medical technology. Um, there are a lot of people who are not able to get into Japan for a number of reasons. Why not solve that? And by the way, the, the great clients that I want to continue working with as individuals who are CEOs of their own company, they're at various stages of developing very new and innovative medical devices. I want to work with those guys. I want to bring them to Japan. And I know that none of those startup companies have nice to spend dollars to pay for expensive consultants. They just don't, and there's no reason to. What they do have, what they do need though. So I, I decided, okay, I'm gonna start up a, a company that will um, give those startup clients exactly what they want and what they need um, and on a reasonably priced level. Uh, and so through making the, that offering, I enabled them to hire my company month by month 
in order to bring their program forward. And they can use us as their virtual subsidiary or virtual operation in Japan. Because what they really need is they need their regulatory approval, something that you can never get beyond. Um, do they need a beautiful uh, PowerPoint market report? Maybe no. Um, but do they need, they need the hard and fast numbers about um, how can we get our device approved in order to sell it to hospitals in Japan? And so this is the, the strategy. It doesn't have to be more very complicated, but they need that, that regulatory uh, approval in Japan. So I decided, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to enable companies that hire us month by month will be their virtual operation. Um, and the eventual goal, the reason, sorry, the, the goal though was not just to be another consulting company because as I said earlier, I was sort of tired of being, being a consultant. So I don't want to, I didn't want to set up, you know, leave a, 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 and sell a high paid consultancy and then start up another consultancy for clients with low ability to pay. That makes no sense. Um, so I wasn't trying to set up another consultancy. What I was trying to do is to enable these companies to come into Japan, but then also to become a commercial entity myself, um, but step-by-step. Step. So we're helping companies come in. We'll also help them find uh, commercial players. We'll also be involved in the commercialization and the, uh, and, and the marketing of the program going forward. Uh, so that's how we built uh, Hikabio. Okay. Very interesting model. Yeah, thank you. All right, and so what what were the lessons you learned about running a business, given your background up to up to that point in your career? Yeah, um, running running a business. You know, um, I, I I tend to think in terms of um, I, I tend to think in terms of the future and what what I think I could make something into. And then the day-to-day -day stuff um, gets in the way. And then you have to buckle down and, and figure out how to do it. So <laughs> I learned that there's a lot of uh, a lot of steps along the way to making the dream come true. And it's sometimes something that you hope would take a month can take years. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the things that I've I've had to learn. I've had to learn patience actually. Um, and I've also had to learn that in order to get something done, um, I can't do it all myself. I need to have a team involved. And in order to have a team involved, you have to have great people around you that you trust. And one thing also that's been uh, difficult for me over the years and I'm still learning is that uh, people on the team, I need to keep them up to speed with, with what I'm thinking so that they can, uh, they can run the ball when it's given to them. Um, so, in other words, you know, have it, having the vision and thinking about the vision and, and, and tweaking that and working on that in a vacuum uh, sometimes is necessary if you need to, you know, dream about what's the next step for the company. But I, I learned that I really need to um, uh, communicate well with my, with my team, my key team of, of managers. Um, leaders in order to make sure that uh, people are on board with um, what we need to do next and what's the, what's the reasons why. So, you know, what what is the goal that we're trying to get to uh, and what is this next step uh, doing to get us there? Uh, so that that's one of the lessons I learned. 
I'm sure there's many more. Um, and I told you the lesson about uh, being careful about taking people's uh, investment money. Um, yeah. I told you the lesson about um, making for sure that uh, you don't have one single client who's 50% uh, of the weight of your, <laughs> of your revenues. That's extremely dangerous. Um, making sure you have people you trust and then, you know, um, transparency of communication really um, is one thing that, and I, I don't consider myself a, a secretive person, but a lot of times if I'm, I'm thinking about stuff uh, and I think I've got, got the great idea, um, the, the next thing is to, to, to put it into action. And if I'm able to put it into action myself, okay, fine. But um, if I need a team of five um, or a team of you know, seven or however many um, on my team to get that done, all rowing in the same direction, it's going to be critically, critically important that they're read into the vision and the dream uh, very early on so they feel that uh, they're part of it. And they're they're part of creating that um, from the beginning. Otherwise, it's it's really hard to to get people to plug into what the next steps should be. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting what you say about you know having companies as a huge 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 percentage of your revenue because one of the companies we were trying to acquire earlier this year, they had one customer who was ninety two percent of their revenue. Oh. Oh, and it actually, we actually, I actually really wanted to acquire this company, but it didn't work out. So it's probably good in the end that it didn't. I'm thinking about that now. You never know. It, it depends on the contracts, but uh, in my experience, the contracts can be, can be broken. And <laughs> then, um, you know, you have to consider what that downside might be. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And in the circle back to people, so what would you say are the importance of people and, and how do you find great mentors and support to help you grow when you're setting out to do something um, of the magnitude that you've done over the years? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've sought out um, the advice. So people are critically important. That's for sure. Um, I think um, the, the best people that we've been able to attract to the business are um, people who, um, who I've, whom I've known for some time. So they, they know my personality, they know what to expect. Um, they know the vision. You know, these are people probably that, you know, in most cases um, hired me for my services back in my consulting company days. And so they know about the approach. Um, they, they expect uh, the uh, honesty and integrity um, they expect the the high quality, and they they understand that, you know, there is a real a dedication on my part and part of my company to um, give back to society because we we have here in Japan we have um, what I think is the best uh, healthcare system in the world, and as you know, it's a uh, a single payer universal access healthcare system. Um, over 7,000 general hospitals, which, by the way, is uh, a lot more than the general hospitals that they have in the U.S., which is about uh, 5,200. So um, it really mind-boggling. The per capita um, capacity that we have here in Japan that we enjoy, um, if you want to get an MRI scan for something uh, in the U.S., it, it could take you a month. Here in Japan, 
you could get it done twice in one day um, and at different hospitals. So this is both good and bad. Um, we need to be very careful about the health economics of what we're doing. And so my policy in the company is that Look, we're not only trying to make money. As a, as a company, we have a responsibility to make money, but our devotion is to bring in assets to Japan that not only have a great impact on the outcomes for patients and doctors' ability to treat their patients, but also has a health economic benefit because our, our goal is we, we believe that we can play a big role in saving the economics of what we feel is the, the greatest healthcare system in the world. If so, uh, that means that's a huge responsibility for us because we need to pick very carefully what these new innovations are. We need to make sure that we understand the goals and motivations of the executive team behind creating that technology. We need to go to the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare to understand what they think about the economics of that opportunity. We need to go to the PMDA, which is the, uh, the Pharmaceutical and Medical Device Association, which gives out the approvals. Um, and we need to understand that they are on board with the science and the safety of the device. And we need to most importantly, go out to Japanese doctors and find out that yes, they, they can get behind this. They support it both for economic and for clinical reasons. So we, we're in this, this unique position of being able to bring in and accelerate access for great technologies around the world that otherwise, if we weren't here, these technologies would not make it to Japan for at least three to five years. So this is our role. And this is a huge responsibility in society because we look at, you know, we look at cancer, we look at heart disease, we look at uh, 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 COPD, we look at some of the diabetes, we look at some of these others, and we're in touch with the, 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 ma the makers, the inventors of the greatest technology in the world. And we know we want those for Japan. And so you asked the question about people. I, I think one thing is that Yes, people is the core of the business, but also I think it's really important to have the vision and to be living the vision every day because the people who have come to this organization, the, the leaders in this organization have come here um, because they, they've actually asked me uh, to join. Uh, and, and so the the most of the leaders in our organization are people that have, have come to me and say, hey, Rob, you know, I'm finally ready to jump ship from my, my big company uh, job and, uh, and think that you know, I wanna join, join Hecabio and uh, join the, the team that's really having an impact. Uh, so this is a cute, you know, for me, this is, uh, it's amazing when that happens. Um, I couldn't be happier. Uh, it's also a big responsibility, not only to the vision, but to those people to make sure that this is a good career move for them. Um, so it is about people, like you said, and it's about inspiring people with that vision that can, uh, and, and living the vision. So the vision is not just, um, not just uh, talking points, but it's something that we live every day. And we, um, we, we need people to also um, believe that you know this this is our our vision that we we intend on our website you'll see we say uh, miracles through partnership because uh, I believe in miracles for one but also um, partnership is what makes it happen both in-house and external so we need to 
be lockstep. We need to be have the same shared values with our clients, shared values with our internal stakeholders, uh, and and our um, group of uh, investors. This is how we make the miracles happen. Yes, it's, it, miracles don't happen suddenly, perhaps, uh, usually, but uh, a lot of times they happen through hard work and good luck, and and then the magic happens. So, this is this is the dream, and. Uh, um, and, and, and the reality. And I, I feel really, really fortunate because I've been able to attract uh, top talent to Hecabio by, um, you know, by being very sincere in this vision and really executing on it. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, it, it's not just me, of course. Um, if it were just me, I would, I would have the vision and I'd, I'd be the guy who's just, you know, head in the clouds and talking about the vision all day. I need, I need people. Um, I need great people to help me make it happen because I can't do it myself. All right, excellent. So, and, and I think you already touched on this a bit, but I, just, I wanted to ask you, what, what are the advantages of building a business and operating in the healthcare industry in Tokyo or Japan, if any? Yeah, it, it's interesting because Japan, healthcare in Japan, um, particularly in, in the med tech area. So it's kind of two that are kind of different, but med tech area, um, you do see some uh, entrepreneurship and new uh, startups coming up, but for the most part, the ecosystem for developing new medical devices in Japan is pretty um, undeveloped, I would say. So if you look to, you know, the Silicon Valley, or if you look to Austin, Texas, or Minneapolis, or Boston, you'll find, or, or Tel Aviv, uh, anywhere in, in Israel anyway, uh, actually. But so the kind of those five different centers, um, Israel and US, and we look at the amount of innovations coming out of there from doctors themselves, from, uh, from universities, from, uh, from startup companies, from biomedical engineers. Um, th there's a lot of these inventions that are coming up and we don't see, we don't have that ecosystem here. I think part of it is cultural and it, it's, it's very difficult for, for example, a, a, a physician, a treating physician uh, in Japan, it, it would be very rare for that doctor to invent something and start up his own company and then expect to get or and sort of isn't run his own company while he's doing his own clinical practice. This is pretty rare. Um, it's it's very rare for a doctor to leave a university post in order to start up a, a business. And then um, because the the culture cultural issue is that um, you're not going to have a, a way to get back in, to get back on that track um, if your company fails. Whereas in the U.S., um, failure is. Uh, is not considered a negative mark on your resume. So there's this. So within that, you have so much innovation going on overseas. Uh, Japanese companies in the med tech space are strong in uh, diagnostic imaging and endoscopy um, and, and some other areas. But in general, the med tech area in Japan is dependent on imports. And so the doctors are looking for the next greatest thing uh, external to Japan. Um, so this puts us in a very good position because we're, 
in touch with the inventors and universities overseas, as well as in Japan. So we hear about these new assets from both sides. So we'll get a call from a, a Japanese doctor down in, in Osaka or something. Say, you guys, you know, I, ju I just saw this. Uh, my friend invented this new thing in California. We really want this for Japan. What can, can you help us? This is the kind of thing that happens to us on a daily basis where we're getting access to the latest and greatest technologies. And, and, and so we're here, we have this niche in Japan in order to bring the products forward. Um, we know that Japan relies on imports and foreign design products in order to, to, uh, to survive that, uh, to satisfy that need for innovation. So really it's, it's a perfect environment for being in our niche in Japan and nobody else is doing it. So we're really filling a, an unmet need here in the system, the way we see it. On, on the biotech side, um, it's it's uh, it, it's different. I mean, biotech is is a bit more, is a bit of a different different market. I mean, there's there's um, licensing that goes on for both ways, you know, out of Japanese pharma and and from from foreign pharma into Japanese pharma. There's that. Um, there are. Um, there are some great um, uh, biotech startups in in Japan as well, um, but we we see a few things in the market there. Um, we see a, a greater number of um, startups in in the U.S. for sure. Um, so we're very focused on for our pharma business. We're very focused on the U.S. Uh, to a degree on Israel as well. Um, but we, we see that as the prime hunting ground for, for bringing assets into Japan. We also see that there are assets in Japan that can be licensed in as well um, in order to uh, bring out to the global landscape. Uh, so we're looking at both directions in terms of the pharma or biotech assets, whereas with uh, medtech assets, we're essentially looking at one-way inbound uh, business. Okay, very interesting. And so what are some of the trends that you guys see emerging in the diagnosis and treatment of disease? Yeah, you know, um, this is a great one. Diagnosis, let's talk about diagnosis a little bit to begin with. Um, we, you know, earlier and faster diagnosis is the name of the game. We know that um, from the standpoint of cancer. Uh, we know that from the standpoint of infectious disease. Um, we know that if a patient is in a, a intensive care unit, um, having early data faster is gonna be uh, of huge benefit for saving that patient's life if something is gonna take a turn for the worse. We know that um, diagnosis of disease, particularly for um, diseases that are chronic, uh, these are the greatest cost uh, to the Japanese healthcare system, which is really focused on services for chronic diseases, and that is uh, COPD, heart failure, and type 2 diabetes. So these, these diseases are really such so costly to the healthcare system. If you can de develop and design solutions that help to keep these patients either from, from becoming patients on, on one of those severe um, uh, chronic diseases, or another one is uh, kidney disease as well in Japan, which is really big. Um, but if you can prevent a patient from slipping into that patient pool, that's one thing. Another one is if you can monitor those patients well, once they do get into that patient group or into that danger zone, and then you can prevent them 
from uh, an exacerbation or a worsening of their condition, which requires them to come in for a long hospitalization, then you're not only helping a patient's quality of life, we're also saving a ton of money from, for the healthcare system. So this, these are the big issues worldwide, of course, but even more so in Japan where, um, where, where these yeah, hospital, the overuse of hospital services is such a driver of healthcare costs that we need to keep those patients healthy. Um, and so we, you know, some, some of the trends uh, um, that we see are um, easier, faster ways to diagnose uh, disease. Um, I, I think one interesting one is, um, uh, is uh, using a urinalysis, a urine test in order to uh, quickly diagnose a, a broad range of diseases that you wouldn't even imagine could be possible through a urine test or using a blood test to do something like that, or even uh, using a breathalyzer um, to analyze, uh, uh, to predict disease um, early on. So in, in the breathalyzer case, you know, you, you hear about, um, you hear about um, how certain animals can tell by smell if somebody has a, uh, cancer or not, right? Have you heard yes. that one? Yes, I have. Yes. Right. So this is really interesting because, you know, certain animals have certain uh, um, olfactory abilities that can be honed and trained and, and, and so forth. So that um, what if you were able to tell exactly what kind of cancer it was? And what if you had, you know, a, a trained dog who could then uh, go around and pick out the uh, the population, or maybe it's a different animal. But you could um, use uh, the, these animals to identify uh, early on um, a very specific type of uh, uh, type of disease, infectious disease or cancer. And what a benefit that would be uh, to society, because the earlier that we can catch something, the earlier we can treat it. And a lot of people talk about how um, you know it's, it's going to be possible in our lifetimes to eliminate cancer, um, and I hope that that's true. Um, and the cornerstone for that is going to be to identify them early on, and then uh, be able to apply early on the immune modulating uh, drugs or other therapies, as well as um, new therapies, uh, including um, new types of radiation. Um, new types of uh, solutions that impact the body's bioelectric system. I'm very interested in, the, in these days. Um, there may be other types of therapy that uh, we haven't really gone into yet, uh, including um, uh, ways to manipulate sound waves um, could also be uh, very useful for certain types of therapy. So I, I think there's a lot coming up. Um, it's going to depend on early diagnosis, I, and it's not only not only dogs and other animals, but uh, different processes for discovering uh, new types of um, uh, early diagnosis is going to be really important. I think Japan, and, and um, so laboratory diagnosis, yes, but also uh, remote diagnosis using uh, digital health tools. And Japan has uh, been a little bit slow to uh, figure out the health economics of that so far. So this is a little bit of an uphill battle, but I think Japan, um, Japan, you know, as with many different things, once Japan gets on, on the bandwagon and, and moving, uh, things tend to go pretty quickly. So I believe that Japan will also see the light in terms of 
uh, how digital health solutions can also help to save money out of the healthcare system. And this could be you know, early diagnosis, early di identification of disease. It could be also, um, there was one that got recently reimbursed for Japan for smoking cessation, whereby um, you use this app to train yourself and it uh, kind of gives you encouragement when you reach milestones. It's kind of a, a personal coach for helping you to quit smoking. And that was reimbursed uh, by the, the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, the National Health Insurance System. So that's kind of the first thing. And there, but there's so many, there's so many great new solutions that are coming on, uh, not only diagnosis, but uh, treatment uh, and the digital health side kind of ability to use big data and AI is really going to be a game changer worldwide. And I believe Japan will quickly get on the bandwagon with that once they can figure out how they should be looking at and considering the economic implications. Because um, I, I think the thing that that uh, slows them down a little bit now is that um, how do you reimburse something in a system where no such solution existed to date? So um, you know, what's the comparator and how do you say that, okay, you know, do, do you need a clinical study to show five years of data that show you that this app on your phone is going to do better than uh, this other practice, which is the current guideline for treatment of a disease? Um, this is a very rigorous and expensive way to go. Um, and I think the, the government of Japan is not wrong in requiring a lot of data uh, in order to want to fund these types of programs. And I think there's probably going to need to be some risk sharing among the, the people like us who are trying to bring new therapies uh, to Japan and get them paid for by the government. Because, uh, you know, not everything should be paid for. Um, and everybody has a responsibility to keep, keep the good system going. Uh, yes, yes, definitely. So uh, this next question, I don't know how silly it sounds, but um, how can HECA Bio become the, the Google of Bio? Yeah, this doesn't sound silly at all, because I, I think um, this is a great, you know, it's a compliment that you would even ask me that, Donald, so thanks. Um, we, we have a great niche, and we, we're on the brink of, of achieving some tremendous milestones. So I'll give you a little bit of more background on what our status is and where we're going. Um, we are an in-licensing bioventure. So we don't invent and create our own stuff. But what we do is we pick the best stuff from around the world and we invest in it, we bring it in, we in-license it and we take the, the Japan rights for that. So that's the in-licensing model. Now, that costs a lot of money um, and so we need to balance that with some other activities. So the other activity that we have is we have a CRO, a CRO contract research organization. This is a company that is a consultancy which runs clinical trials and gets regulatory approvals for paying clients. So the, the client that has enough money and they wanna to come to Japan, if we can convince them to come to Japan, then they're willing to pay our fees, then great. Um, they become a consulting client, they come into our CRO column, and uh, that moves along. So we have the side of our business where we've in-licensed products, and that costs money, and we have the consulting business, which is, 
tend to be longer projects in order to move forward with regulatory approval. And we have that as a money-making operation. There's a third one that we have because we realize that some businesses come to us and they're a little, a little bit early stage. So, or the, the timing isn't right for one reason or another, or the, you know, it's not, so say that a great, the next greatest thing comes to us, but we don't have the money that we're going to earmark right now for in licensing it ourselves. And the company doesn't have the bandwidth, either the money or the internal resources in order to pay us through the CRO model to come into Japan. So what happens to that great innovation? Either we ignore it and wait two years and then come back to it. Well, this is not a satisfactory result. If we really want it and we know that our key opinion leader doctors here in Japan want it, then why not try to find another solution for it? So what we do is we do business development. So our BD arm is the third arm. So we've got ventures, which is the in-licensing side of our business, the ventures, we've got CRO, contract research organization, consulting, and BD. In the BD arm, what we do is a company will come to us and they contract us for a certain number of months. We will then go out and find them access to capital. We will find them access to uh, distribution partners in Japan. And once we succeed with that project, we, we say goodbye and good luck. Um, so we, you know, we, we get those deals done and, and we walk away from them. So that's the third arm of our business. Now to your question, how can we become the Google of Japan? We have right now a, a very unique position in Japan. Um, and focusing only on Japan, we can accelerate a fairly enormous number of great programs into Japan. In the last um, seven years, we brought in 41 programs. Uh, a lot of them are extremely successful. Um, and so, this is great for us because we can then point at, hey, we got the approval for that program and look how many patients are benefiting. Or, you know, we can, we can, we can do this kind of conversation here in the office, which is a great motivator in itself. But um, how, how can we really scale up our business to be, become something much greater? Well, as you know, a consulting company cannot scale up. That's based on hiring people and, you know, somebody has 2,000 hours a year and that, that's it. Um, the, the business development model is um, a little bit better at scaling than that, but not enormously. The way that we're going to scale up is by owning the Japan assets and also potentially also getting ex-Japan uh, into Asia for some of those assets that we own the, the rights to because once those programs start selling and we have the rights in Japan to them commercially, um, that's when um, something other than our, our people and our sweat equity start doing some, some uh, contribution for us. So the product, starts, the product starts making us some money. So mm -hmm. of the programs that we've been licensed, um, we will have our first sale. We will not have our first sale until 2022. So this is still a ways out, but believe it or not, we've achieved something miraculous, which is we as an in-licensing bio-venture that typically you know, burns through tens of millions of dollars of cash every year, uh, we have a zero burn rate model, business model, because 
we had the in-licensing bioventure, bio which costs money, but we had on the side, the CRO and the BD businesses, which is a, which are money makers. So we're able to balance those two things and we're able to survive and survive and survive until we have product launches. And I believe in two years, you will see us really take off uh, in terms of valuation and in terms of ability to attract the next greatest thing uh, that we bring in. Um, does that make us a Google? I'm not sure, but uh, I think it's going to have a huge impact on our valuation at least. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and one thing I've noticed what Google's done over the past 15 years, I mean, they've just acquired so many companies, so many of their products that I actually thought they invented, they've acquired. So, I mean, not too much different from Google at all, right? I guess. Yeah. All right, so one more before we jump into um, the lightning round. So what is the, what's the best thing that's happened to Hecabio this past year or so? Hmm. Well, we were very fortunate to be able to, to sign on a new um, investor uh, very recently uh, from a, uh, one of the uh, major Japanese pharma companies. Um, I'm not going to say the name of the company yet because we're waiting for a, a big press release. But uh, this is this is tremendous news for us, and it enables us to onboard the next round of uh, of, of assets that we're looking at. Um, so this this really puts us on uh, on the map uh, in terms of uh, uh, bio ventures in Japan and and. Uh, you know, really gives us a lot of steam to make our dreams come true. So this is uh, you know, something that we've been working on for about a year to find the right partner and make sure the economics are, are uh, favorable for everyone. And uh, we finally have, uh, have uh, zoomed in on that uh, and have a, a great partnership that's uh, moving forward as we speak. But this is, this is the, the best thing that happened this year. Excellent, congrats on that. I look forward to seeing that press release soon. Thank you. All right, so let's jump into the lightning round now and we'll get you, before we get you off to the rest of your day. Okay. All right, so what, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Yeah, um, I love um, Paolo Coelho, the author. And I recently, uh, so I've read a number of his books. Uh, this year I read uh, The Pilgrimage. Um, which is really amazing, and that uh, that was a big impact for me. It's about it's about uh, trust and faith and courage, and uh, and also finding your soul mission, and um, these kind of aspects, which are both which are important for everyone, whether you're a you know highly spiritual person or just a just a person um, who's very seriously thinking about the meaning of life. And uh, so I really really enjoyed that one. That's one. Another one is. Um, uh, Loon Shots by Safi Bakal, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, Loon Shots, this is a tremendous book about um, how to build a corporate culture that enables people to come up with and act on uh, crazy ideas, uh, because his, his theory is that the larger the organization becomes, uh, the more an organization becomes, uh, you know, managers who are basically thinking about politics and thinking mm, about yeah. promotion and and <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, who they need to beat out in order to get a promotion, this kind of thing. Um, and uh, and, and the, the idea is that 
in uh, in an organization that's concerned about politics, you're never going to have a, a loon shot or a crazy innovation come out of that. Um, and so how to continue uh, to build a business that really has that entrepreneurial um, mindset or buzz that encourages everyone in the organization to come up with crazy ideas. Um, so this this is that was a great one. Great. And that's one. loon shot. That's with an L. Loon shots. Loon shots. Yep. Okay. All right. So, and how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? I have a good. <laughs> I have plenty of failures to talk about. <laughs> Uh, so let me pick one. Um, but, you know, I do find, you know, they, they say, I'm not sure who said this first, but they do say that, you know, one door closes and you know, another one opens or, or the, the next door is not going to open until the first one's closed. I really have found that to be true. So I, um, I have a very positive outlook when, when something, you know, I, I'm very focused on um, moving toward the eventual goal. But I think that it's good practice to keep um, keep uh, flexible or don't be stubborn about how that goal is going to be achieved, uh, and keep keep the goal big, but don't be don't be stubborn about how you're going to get there because um, things will happen that you don't know about, um, and something that looks like a huge failure can actually turn into a success. So my to my example, um, we had this this drug. And we, we were negotiating with a German company to in-license that drug. And we were negotiating for about a year uh, to get that. And um, we, everything looked like it was going to happen. And at the last minute, um, we got outbid by a big Japanese company, and we lost it. Um, and so <laughs> I, uh, when, when I got the call um, from their uh, their uh, their board member from Germany. Um, I remember. I remember not being very upset about it, but I, I remember that my team was really, really upset about it. Um, and I, I needed to kind of coach people through, saying, "Look, something better is going to happen." But I, some something that helped me a lot is my my wife tends to be very intuitive. And um, she told me about three months before we lost that deal. She said, Rob, I have a feeling you're going to lose this deal. <laughs> really? Um, wh why do you think that? He said, you know, you, you get this, this one drug and that's what you're going to be. You're going to be selling this one drug for the next 15 years of your life. Are you sure that's what you want to do? And, uh, you know, she was right. <laughs> because... Uh, Moments after we lost that deal, um, and, and you know, moments after we had literally a week after we lost that deal, um, the next big deal came in for us, um, and we didn't even know that it was going to be the next big deal. But it was a phone call came in from Israel and said, "Hey, Rob, I got your no number. I got your name from a friend. I'd like to talk to you about bringing our program to Japan," and. You know what? If we had in license that drug from Germany, we wouldn't have had the bandwidth to take on this program from from Israel, which is potentially a huge game changer in the treatment of cancer. Um, Alpha Tau Medical, they were able to able to partner with and bring in, um, and so that that one failure was 
what opened the door for what's really become the, the number one program for our company. So, you know, I, I think having the faith to stay open to what you're going to encounter on the path and having, having the, the trust and, and faith that, uh, um, you know, things may not happen exactly as we see, but uh, we can get to the goal eventually. And uh, having, having that, uh, that confidence in the team is, is something that's uh, um, hard, to, hard to cultivate, but really important as well. Yeah, and, and as you said, definitely important to know, realize that other doors open when one closes and being able to recognize those opportunities when they present themselves as well. I think that's crucial also. So yeah, yeah. perfect story. Yeah, thank you. All right, so Rob, if you could have a, I usually say advertisement, but I'm gonna say if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Hmm. Yeah, billboard. Um, I don't know how, how well this would go over, but uh, you know, if, if I were to have a slogan for my life, I think that I, I would like to, um, which is sort of one, of one of the things that I live by, but if I could also convince others to go by it, I would be very happy. And that is um, optimism and generosity are contagious. So um, maybe on the uh, on the billboard is it would I don't know if there's some design or something that could be made to display this, but um, encourage people to start their own positive feedback loop because um, if you are if you have a feeling of uh, generosity or abundance towards others around you, I think that that brings everything back to you. And I think positive thinking and um, and belief in an abundant universe is what um, creates more abundance for people. And I think that we live in a universe that uh, where everyone is meant to be taken care of well, and everyone is meant to live well. I don't think that that uh, in our world we should have uh, such dramatic, uh, um, you know differences in, in, in wealth and, uh, and livelihood. So I think that, um, but I think, you know, everyone on the spectrum of no matter where you are in, in what you're doing in your life, um, to be optimistic and, and generous. So, okay, here's the billboard. Um, optimism and generosity are contagious. Start your own positive feedback loop. Okay, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I mean love that, how I well think, that rings, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely get it because I think in today's world where I mean we're like programmed to think in terms of lack. So everybody's looking to get theirs instead of, you know, being generous. But like you said, mm -hmm. I mean generosity, it it bespeaks more generosity. So I definitely get yeah. it. That's my that's my philosophy. Yes. All right, thank you. All right, so in the, in the last five years, Rob, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Yeah, you know, I think um, I've gotten a lot of value out of um, <laughs> uh, hanging around with um, more like-minded people. So I, I've been much more careful about uh, who I spent time with and uh, this habit was uh, taught to me by someone that we, we both know, uh, Mike, 
<laughs> uh, and he's been a great influence on me. Um, but he he's told me, you know, his, his theory is that uh, every, everyone everyone has 24 hours in a day, and you know the people you're around will either um, help you or or not. And so be very careful about <laughs> who you're spending your time with. Uh, I think that's that's a positive thing. Um, I I do a lot of meditation, and I think over the past five years and even past five months, uh, that practice has really uh, taken off and given given me a lot of uh, uh, confidence in in what I'm doing, where I'm going, um, and ability to to focus on things really well. Uh, it helps me keep my antenna up. Because here's here's another one of my theories. I think that in this in this world, I think that we we're surrounded by amazing opportunities all the time, and it's just a matter of what can we recognize? Can we recognize something for you know? Okay, if I put in this small ingredient, this could become an opportunity. I think recognizing those those opportunities is is one thing that I love doing. Um, and it's one thing that I think I have a gift for. So uh, I, I'm becoming even, you know, I think I, I've been that way all my life, but I think I'm getting a lot better at it recently. So it's, it's really it's really fun for me uh, to see that. Now, of course, <laughs> that doesn't mean I can do everything and take action on everything that I see or sense. Um, but um, it, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, quite uh, happy with in my life right now. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, so I had a, I heard a quote not too long ago that kind of relates to that. It says most a lot of people miss opportunities because they're dressed up as hard work. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So what you say about being able to recognize those opportunities, I think that's that's so true. Yeah, yeah. You can't be afraid of hard work. Yeah, but definitely. you know what though? Speaking of hard work, this is an interesting one because I think um, a lot of us who who grew up. Um, you know, in the U.S. and in other, Japan too, um, certain cultures have um, this strong value for um, if you don't work hard at it, it's not, uh, it's, you don't deserve the success. It's kind of a, I don't know if it's appropriate to call it a, a Puritan work ethic or this kind of thing. But I, I, I think that, you know, of course, um, you can't be afraid of hard work, that's for sure. But the other side of that coin is, um, it's also important to, to believe that um, miracles can drop into your lap without you having to do hard work sometimes. That can yeah. also happen. So yeah. don't, don't doubt those either. Don't, don't think that you need to have your nose against the grindstone all the time because things can happen that will fall in your lap too. Right, yeah, the stars can definitely align for you. Yeah. Okay, and um, what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day -day for people new to entrepreneurship? Hmm. You know, the, the, I think the only, I, I've heard, I, I advised a couple of entrepreneurs um, and the ones that don't get off the ground that I've seen are people who are designing something that uh, has an undefined market need. So, you know, of course, things are different. If you're gonna create a new market and you have the muscle to do that, if you're Elon Musk, go for it. You can create a new market, you can create a need for that, that, that product or service. 
But if you're just getting started as an entrepreneur, you need to be very sure that there is an outlet and there's a need for what you're going to be creating. Um, so I would rather, you know, in my case, I, I started out my first company with captive uh, um, companies that I knew were going to buy my services. They were right there ready for me to set up my company. All it took is for me to sort out my visa and everything else. <laughs> and it was off, off and running. But, um, you know, I, I've recently advised a couple of entrepreneurs who, you know, they have this uh, very slick, um, like one guy who has a very slick AI platform for something, um, which uh, works really well, but may not have uh, um, a, mar a market or a need and a recognized need in, in the market right now. Or, um, you know, so I, I've seen a couple of things like that where people look at what they're good at, what they want to do, and then they, they say, well, I'm just going to do it. And uh, hopefully I'll find a customer. I would do it the other way. I would, I would research the market need first and be very sure that what you're getting into is going to satisfy a need and people are willing to pay for it. Um, that's a much uh, easier road to travel. Um, that's one. But the other thing is, um, you know, it goes around the, the whole, you know, the issue of uh, um, sometimes you'll have people, good people recommend that, you know, whatever the money is, take it. You know, take the first money in the door. Um, don't be picky. Just go. Um, and I think that can lead to mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. Mistakes later on. I think everything is everything is about people. So I know you know um, you know if you're going to advise someone to get into an investment themselves from the other end of things, you know you you want you want to advise them as investors to to really understand, trust, uh, believe in the vision and the values of the people that they're getting into business with. Because in my mind, um, look, we're, we're in business, we're, in, we're investors, we're angel investors, we're serial investors, whatever we are, um, not just to make money. We're, we're here to make an impact. Um, you know, it, life is not just about, uh, about making money. It's, it's nice to succeed in investments, but uh, I, I think, you know, if if we're just looking af after the best return deal, um, and we're looking at a nice PowerPoint presentation or a nice Excel chart that shows, because no investment perspective shows a shows a loss making enterprise, right? So, um, <laughs> if we're, you know, you 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 look at these, you look at these plans, and you know, you know, then you have to look at. Do you trust the people? Do you believe in the people? It's not just trust. It's um, you know, do you, do you are you resonating with the people who are building this business? You know, from both sides. Do you want to be an investor? Do you want them to be an investor? Either either way, um, I think it's really important that the people align so that um, great people can do great things together um, with that common trust and respect for each other. Um, otherwise. You can get into a relationship that's that has a, a, a very strange power balance of uh, one cracking the whip and the other one uh, having to <laughs> having to do lots of work, um, which uh, which is never good. So um, I, I really think every, everything in business is about is about people, and I would you know I'm repeating myself, but I think you know uh, on any deal, um, looking at the deal on a, uh, a on an Excel spreadsheet doesn't tell you the whole story. I think mm -hmm. you really need to 
look at the the what are, what are the merits of the program if it succeeds? Is this something that you'd be proud to have written on your on your tombstone for having participated in? And uh, who are the people you're getting involved in? Is this uh, is it is it worth um, either succeeding or failing um, together with this group of of people? And if so, um, I think go for it. Okay, excellent, excellent advice. All right, so two more, Rob, and we're gonna let you out of here. All right. So in the last, I, I like to say five years, but in the last five years or so, what have you become better at saying no to? Oh, so Donald, I'm actually very bad at saying no. Um, I say yes to, to a lot of things that I probably shouldn't. But um, one one thing I've gotten good at is, um, is somehow being able to slink out of and or not participate in um, uh, late night uh, client um, dinners and, and drinking expeditions. Uh, and that saved me a lot of, uh, saved me a lot of time. I know, you know, in Japan, in Japan culture that, uh, you know, there's some, some value to, uh, to doing that and building relationships uh, uh, over, over drinks and, you know, in, in, in those kind of uh, uh, scenarios, but um, definitely, I've really been able to save a lot of time by not doing that. Another thing that I did, so it, it's all about saving time. The other thing that I did is I completely stopped watching uh, televised support sports. So I, I don't look at any, um, I don't look at any any televised sports, and I don't um, I don't look at uh, scores. So uh, it, it means that I'm able to save a ton of time. Uh, and I just found that that's a, a more productive uh, use of my time than, than not. But it okay. makes me very strange because some some of the conversations I don't I don't really get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the long run, I think it's good. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think about that a lot. I think would I be better if I just threw my TV out? Because I mean, I think Netflix is my is my demon and my I can't get off of Netflix. Or like Mike said, he doesn't watch TV at all. I think I'd be better off just getting rid of my TV because yeah, once I get into a series on Netflix, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna watch this until I finish, and I probably yeah, wait quite I, a good amount of time with that. Yeah, I I am not um, I'm not TV free, so I also watch Netflix. Uh, I like movies, I like TV shows, but you know, not every day do I have time to do that. But uh, yeah. I like doing that. Yeah. All right. So the last one, Rob. So when you feel when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused. What, what do you usually do? Um, so I, I rarely feel overwhelmed or unfocused, but when I do, um, I do what I, what I do every day anyway, which is uh, meditate. Um, and I've got a, an area in, my, uh, um, in one of our rooms that's kind of set up as my, my spot for that. And I've, uh, uh, I get there, it's a, a very comfortable space for me and I'm able to quickly uh, focus in and um, get a lot of insights and centering. Um, so yeah, I never never feel very far off center um, when continuing that practice. Are you meditating um, twice a day? Not twice a day. Um, you know, it's normally uh, it's normally in the evening. I have some things that I do very quickly in the morning and uh, very quickly before bed. 
but uh, it's it's normally in the in the evening. Some days I will spend an entire day meditating um, if I can get away with it. Um, you know, on on a weekend day or on a retreat, I'll do that. Um, but uh, normally I'll do a kind of a routine of once a day. Okay. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you earlier. Um... When we met, uh, that I just started meditating back in probably middle of September, but it's really been mm. an uplifting and enlightening experience for me. So yeah, I would recommend that to any anyone who's not doing it. Awesome, yeah, really important. All right, well, great, Robert. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about next time we see each other, Donald. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll have to <laughs> let's set something up soon. Thank you. So yeah, Rob, we've covered a plethora of information today. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight and wisdom with us. This has been great for, for me and the listeners, I'm sure. Thank you, Donald. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. So and before we jump off, if um anybody wanted to get in contact with you or learn more about you and and what you're doing, the companies you're involved with, what's the best way they can go about doing that? Yeah, I would love that. And uh, here's my email. It's rob dot c l a a r at hecabio which is h e k a b i o dot com rob claire rob dot claire at hecabio dot com and very, very happy for anyone to contact me okay and i'll make sure i put that link in your um, bio as well awesome all right rob so thanks so much again and um i'll be seeing you soon Thank you, my friend. All right, take care. Bye now. Bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. Mm-hmm.